Before we start, if you're enjoying these conversations, please make sure that you like or subscribe to Cleaning Up. It really helps other people to find us. Cleaning Up is brought to you by the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation. Hello, I'm Michael Liebreich, and this is Cleaning Up. By now, we've all heard of quantum computing, but what is it and what will be its impact on the net zero transition? My guest today on Cleaning Up is Tommaso Tom de Marie. He's the CEO and co-founder of Entropica Labs, a company working on the use of quantum computing to solve real-world problems. Please welcome Tom to Cleaning Up. So, Tom, very good to see you here. It's great to be here. Thank you, Michael. Now, uh, Tom, tell me, where are you at the moment? Where are you dialing in from? So right now I'm at home in Singapore, uh, which has been my home for the last eight years. In fact, I came here to work at the Center for Quantum Technologies uh, at the National University, and I'm calling you from there. And is Singapore a hotbed of quantum computing? Great question. Singapore was very actually forward-looking from the beginning because they started the the Center for Quantum Technologies more than 12 years ago. So it was really one of the hottest uh, places to work in quantum computing, but also in quantum technologies um, altogether. So yes, absolutely. Especially in Asia, especially in this part of the world is one of the best places if you're interested in quantum tech, if you want to work in quantum tech. So now we've got just under an hour and we've got a lot to cover. The audience, my audience, usually consists of people who basically know lots, lots more than me. Um, and also people who know relatively little, but they're all really smart. So we're going to have to do everything from get really into some of the detail. But actually, we've got to start by saying, what is quantum computing? And, you know, what, what's the, the, the quick version, please? Not the, not the <laughs> PhD version. Sure. This is, this is a question I love. It's a very hard question to answer. I tell you immediately, but let me try. So the quick and short and dirty answer is, Quantum computing means processing information using quantum systems. Let me say a few more words about that. I guess everyone who's listening and even you is familiar with the idea of a computer, which is what we are using right now to do this call. So when you have a computer, what you're really doing, you're processing information. Quantum computer goes a step beyond that and touches on the quantum mechanical effects so the fundamental effects, if you like, of nature to do something more than classical computers can do. And everyone is very excited about the concept of quantum computing today because these, these devices, if you like, they bear the promise to solve some problems that are impossible to solve, or at least it would take a really, really long time to be solved using traditional or conventional or classical computers. I will use these words interchangeably. Um, and they would be able, at least we believe, that they will be able to solve these problems much, much faster. Now, is it just that they are faster? Are they kind of just like normal computers, but faster? And is it because, you know, a normal computer uses noughts and ones, and a quantum computer can use all the different quantum levels, and there's uncertainties and, and, uh, and, and some, you know, sort of weird physics effects, but fundamentally, they're just, think about them as just really, really fast computers, or are they doing something different? Are they going to be modeling things because they are quantum computers? Can they sort of short circuit entire algorithms and do things in a much better way? I'm glad you're asking that. So no, you should not just think of quantum computers as 
much faster classical computers or something like that. In fact, quantum computing is, a, is an entirely different paradigm of computation. I think there is, very, there is something very, very profound about how you know, humans learn more about nature and learn more about physical theories and how the computing models and the computing paradigms also improve with this you know, better understanding of physics. So after having, if you like, mastered classical physics, then classical computing in a way followed suit. And as you, as I guess you know, in, in the 20s, in the 30s, quantum mechanics came to be last century. And that really sparked a revolution in our understanding of nature. And in the 80s, the concept and the idea of quantum computing was, if you like, was born or was introduced. So it's a different paradigm. And quantum computers can do things that classical computers cannot do because they can tap into effects that are intrinsically quantum mechanicals. I can give you some names also for your audience. Maybe they're interested in learning more. For example, they might have heard of entanglement. They might have heard of superposition. Uh, they might have heard of interference. In fact, even the basic unit of information of a quantum computing is different. It's called a quantum bit, short qubit, while the traditional unit of information for classical computers is the bit. And I have a very nice analogy that always helps me to, to understand the difference between the bit and the quantum bit. And hopefully it will immediately give a little bit of understanding of why the two are different. You can think of a bit as a switch. It can only be on or off, like zero or one. And in fact, if you take planet Earth and your position on the planet is the same as a bit, then you could only be either at the North Pole and then you would be in a zero state, or you could only be at the South Pole, then you would be in a one state. But if you try to do the same and you want to describe a quantum bit, a qubit, then you can do so much more. In fact, you could, do, you could uh, be anywhere on the surface of the planet, absolutely anywhere. And that immediately should, should help you understand that quantum computers can access more computing power, if you, if you allow me to say. That's a great analogy. I'm going to use that because, you know, what you've got is a situation where fundamentally with normal bits, it's binary and you can teach it to really quite young kids right. using, is there a jelly baby? Isn't there a jelly baby? You know, it's, it's actually quite, quite easy, but with quantum, of course, it just is so non-intuitive that it becomes very difficult to, for me to envisage it and therefore to communicate it to, to anybody. Uh, but I'll use your analogy there. <laughs> But when, so when you try and turn that into an actual thing, you know, okay, so we all read these stories uh, about uh, quantum entanglement and they take one particle however far away and so on. And, and then, you know, if you come down to the actual computers, what does it, what, what does it look like? What, what physical systems are we using? I mean, there's different approaches, right? Optical, et cetera, et cetera. So what, are the, what does it actually require in terms of, in a sense, the hardware? Right. In fact, if you don't mind, before I answer that question, I, I also would like to say a few more words on why quantum computing is so fundamentally important and why I believe it's fair to be very excited about the technology. So in the, in the 80s, in fact, in 1982, there was a conference organized by, by IBM, conference about computing, in fact. And Richard Feynman, the, the famous physicist, he said something incredibly profound. He, he highlighted the fact that nature is fundamentally quantum. And therefore, if you want to simulate nature in its entirety, ideally, you should use another quantum system to do so. 
but the conventional computers, the classical computers are not quantum. So he had already understood, and he wasn't the only one to be fair, he had already understood that classical computers have some fundamental limits. That as far as we can understand, as far as we know about physics, they are not able to efficiently simulate any other physical system. And there are also some problems that remain uh, unsolvable for these machines. And I think it's very important to say that because it's also set the context right of the whole conversation. And I would also like to highlight how computing today is really the backbone of, of economy, right? Um, the growth in computing power since the, I mean, I know this is an example that everyone uses, but since the Apollo landing on the moon and the, and the computing power of, of the device that they use to guide uh, the Apollo up to today, to the supercomputers that we have today has been nothing short of incredible. And in fact, the more computing power we have, the more we can do as a society, the more problems we can solve and the more we can grow altogether. But there are also limits, as I said, to what classical computers can do. And this is why it feels like there needs to be a transition, just like there was a, a transition from solving problems using you know, pen and paper, and then we introduced the analog computer and then the digital computer and things change radically. Now it feels like we need to do another jump and go not throw away the whole classical computing, uh, paradigm, which is incredibly successful. In fact, keep it as it is, but also use at the side quantum computers in this case. Oh. And since you were asked, oh, if you okay, want so, to. Okay, yeah, so we're going to get on to some of those algorithms, some of the types of calculus that we can't do with uh, traditional computers. Uh, but I, but let's get back to just so my audience has an understanding of, you know, if you, if you walked into a room and there's a com quantum computer there, what are you actually going to be looking at? Right. And the reason why I was giving this long introduction is because at the very beginning of the history of computers, uh, these machines were huge. Today, we're used to have a laptop, um, you know, on the desk. We have like two or three computers in our pockets, maybe a smartwatch, maybe one iPhone, another phone for, for work or whatnot. So we have computers everywhere in our house. But at the beginning, this was not the case. There were very large machines, uh, quite expensive. They were located in few places around the world. And people would go physically there to access them, or they, would, or they would phone from very far away asking to do something. And today, quantum computers are very similar in spirit. I don't have a quantum computer at home. You are unlikely to have a quantum computer at home anytime soon. In fact, there are very few quantum computers today. I would say less than 30, or at least in that order of magnitude. Let's say less than 50 uh, commercial quantum computers, at least. And they are all fairly bulky. But what is very beautiful is that unlike traditional computers, there are in fact many different ways today you can build a quantum computer. If you go back to this idea of the qubit, which is at the end of the day, a mathematical description, then a big question that people have been asking themselves after Feynman made that famous remark in the 80s was, how do we actually build a qubit? And you mentioned a few um, of these architectures. So today we have superconducting chips or superconducting qubits, qubits, we have trapped ions, we have photonics, qubits, and so forth. And, and if you like, we can get into the details of all these different architectures. So basically, as soon as you've got a physical thing that is exhibiting quantum behavior, and as soon as you can trap it, keep it in the same place and link it up to some other stuff around it, then you could build a quantum computer. Very nice. Almost, 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 almost. but we are oh. getting there. Yes. So a qubit is a two-level quantum system. If, if people are familiar with physics, you can think of that as a, as a, as a spin. 
really. But think of it as a two-level quantum system. Now, not all quantum systems are two-level quantum systems. So you need to be able to find some that exhibit that kind of behavior. And as you said, you need to be able to control them exquisitely so. In fact, the problem with quantum systems is that they're very susceptible to noise. Nature has this habit of disturbing quantum systems all the time. So when people try to build a quantum computer, what they really want to do, they want to, let me use the word create, or they want to encode qubits into physical systems. Then they want to put these qubits into a system that shields them from all external noise. But at the same time, since it is a computer, you need to be able to access it. So there, is, there are always these two forces kind of fighting between each other. On one end, you want to close your system as much as you can and protect it. But on the other end, you also have to open it because you need to interact with it and tell it what to do because indeed it is a computer. And so a lot of the challenge is you've got, um, you'll just have some, some bit of noise, some bit of solar radiation, whatever it is, that comes in and creates a, an extraneous, a, a, a wrong answer. You have to find that and correct it within the computer so that you're not coming out with the wrong answer is that is that uh, how am i doing here because this is you're you know, doing great you're absolutely <laughs> doing great and, and we are we are going in exactly in the right direction and 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 i'm very happy of that but even before we get to the to the what what you just mentioned is basically the idea of error correction so errors are introduced into the quantum computation uh, caused by all sorts of effects you want to be able to correct them faster than they actually happen. Today, we are still not really able to do that. It's incredibly difficult to perform error correction. You need hundreds, thousands, millions of qubits to perform it uh, successfully. And, and maybe this is a good time in the conversation to start giving numbers and also you know, giving names to the different players in the industry. So what is happening today in quantum computing? You have very large players like IBM, Google, Microsoft, um, at some point also Honeywell, building these devices. And you have startups, although maybe calling them startups is a little bit unfair because they are very well-funded and also fairly large in terms of manpower, also building these machines. And they're all following different approaches. So for example, IBM and Google are building what they're called superconducting quantum computers. There, what you do, you have a chip and you basically build what they're called artificial atoms. So you use traditional circuitry to create something that behaves like an atom, like, a two like this two-level quantum system, when you cool it down at very, very low temperatures. In fact, temperatures that are lower than outer space, like few millikelvins. So you were asking, how does a quantum computer look like? In this case, it looks like a very big chandelier, which is just a refrigerator. And the chip is at the bottom of this big fridge if you like, because you need to cool it down so that this, macros microscop sorry, this macroscopical system starts to exhibit quantum mechanical, therefore microscopical effects. And how many chandeliers do you need? Is that one chandelier per qubit or many qubits under one chandelier? Many qubits under one chandelier, luckily. So there's been a lot of progress in that sense. We started with a handful of qubits, so in 2016, IBM put the first quantum computer on the cloud. And this is another very important word that I will be using a lot today, the cloud. So they put the first quantum chip on the cloud. It had five qubits inside a single chandelier. Uh, today, or actually I should say a few weeks ago, IBM released a new device with 127 qubits, still in a single chandelier, which is incredibly impressive because in just a few years, we have witnessed what really is an exponential growth 
in the number of qubits. Okay. Now, just for completeness, um, some of the startups, are they, are they following the same, first of all, who are they? And are they following the same chandelier approach, the superconducting uh, circuit, or are they uh, choosing a different approach? Some of them are following the same approach. Some of them are following different approaches. So we have Rigetti. There is a company based in, um, in California, near San Francisco, in Berkeley. So they are also building superconducting quantum computers. They're also being very successful. They just announced a 40 and an 80 qubit device, still 40 and 80 qubit chips. These are two different chips. Each one has its own chandelier. Um, but then you have other companies, for example, IonQ, that IPO'd just a few months ago, quite su successfully, uh, with a $2 billion valuation. They're building a different kind of quantum computer. And I would like to emphasize how actually beautiful this is, because in classical computing, pretty much all the devices follow, they're all the same, allow me to say. If you buy, you know, if you, if you buy a Mac, if you buy a Lenovo, they might have different architectures, but the idea, the fundamental idea, the physical realization, doesn't really change. This is still not true in quantum computers. There are all these different competing architectures. And for example, IonQ is building what are called trap ions, quantum computers, where you, what you do, instead of building artificial atoms, you use real atoms. You eliminate an electron, so they are ionized, so we call them ions, and then they send each single ion inside the vacuum chamber and they keep them in place using electromagnetic fields and lasers, which is really incredible because when you look at the pictures, you can see this beautiful line of atoms perfectly aligned. Again, exquisite control of quantum systems. Tom, I'm smiling because we had Stephen Chu, Professor Stephen mm. Chu, former Secretary of Energy in the US, who, of course, won a Nobel Prize for trapping, I believe, trapping ions uh, using a laser. And that was his... Right his innovation, but now we get them to line up and march in time with each other. It's incredible. It's incredible. And another point that I would like to emphasize is that all these ideas, everything we are discussing right now, for example, the superconducting qubits, these are based on a, on a particular kind of qubit called a transmond qubit, which is incredibly young because the idea comes from 2007, if I'm not wrong, uh, from Yale University, Sholkop's lab. In fact, one of the people in was the author of the of that paper is today one of the leaders in the IBM efforts, uh, Jay Gambetta. So 2007 is really, really little, is literally yesterday. Right. And from the idea, from the theoretical idea, if you like, and the first in, uh, realization of a transmon qubit, today we have a device that you, that is basically a commercial quantum computer. is is absolutely fantastic. And just in terms of the tour of the different approaches, there are people working with um, uh, photonics. Mm -hmm. and saying that they will be less error-prone because a photon doesn't interact in the same way that an ion does with all the stuff around it. Is that something that you give credence to? So, right. If you remember before we were talking about noise and how quantum systems are very susceptible to noise, what they say is true. So photons tend to interact with very, very little. So that is correct, per se, uh, that photonics... So photonic quantum computers will be more noise resistant. And there are a few companies following this approach. For example, Sanadu in Canada, Opsi Quantum, also in California. And they're using slightly, or they're following slightly different approaches, but they're both based on photonics. The difficulty there, though, is that, yes, they interact very little, therefore we have less noise, but they're also 
more difficult to manipulate because they interact very little. So you save on noise, but then you need to be incredibly smart to perform what are called quantum gates. So to perform operations on the qubits, on the photonic qubits. Okay, so um, now let's talk about how many qubits you need to do something useful, because <laughs> you're going to use some of them for error correction and so on. So what's the, uh, what's the magic number and how close are we to getting there? Right. So let me remove from the conversation uh, quantum annealers that are yet a different kind of beast in the, in the universe of quantum computing. So D-Wave is a company following that approach. They have thousands of qubits. And I'll just say for completeness, but I will not be talking about them because the approach that they follow is, is slightly different. Uh, what we are talking about right now is called universal quantum computation. So everything I will be saying refers to this idea of being able to perform any computation you like with a quantum computer. The largest number of qubits available today is the 127 qubit um, device by, by IBM. Then you have Google. Uh, okay, you have Rigetti with the 80 qubit device, uh, Google with between 50 to 60. There is a device in, uh, in China at the FA University that has 65 qubits, if I'm not wrong, and then you keep going down. You were asking how many qubits you need to do something useful. There's a great question, and the very, unfortunately, disappointing answer is that we don't know just yet. Because if you think of utility as, or at least, if we assume the utility means being able to solve a problem that has commercial value, so a problem that somebody cares about, uh, then a quantum computer hasn't been able yet to do so. Quantum computer so far has not solved a problem that has commercial value, that has commercial relevance, better than a classical computer can do. So this is quantum supremacy, where you finally do something that you couldn't have done with a normal computer, and that has not happened yet. Ha, right. I was speaking about utility exactly to make that separation. So there are these two concepts that sound very similar, but in fact, they are subtly different. So what you refer to a quantum supremacy means being able to solve a problem, any problem, even some mathematical, very abstract problem, better than a classical computer. And in fact, that has happened already a few times. <laughs> Wait, so the but, it, but it was not useful or what? It was not useful. It was not <laughs> useful. So scientifically, maybe deserves a Nobel Prize. And it might at some point deserve a Nobel Prize because it was an incredible uh, effort and an incredible result. In fact, this was done by the Google's team, led by John Martinez in 2019. They use a superconducting chip to solve a mathematical problem, what is called a sampling problem, where you try to sample from a probability distribution that is highly complex. And the assumption is that you wouldn't be able to sample from that distribution using a classical computer, but at least it would take a really long time. And when that happened, um, before the result was officially announced, actually the results were leaked to the press. So they were appearing everywhere on the internet. And at the time I was at a conference and there, there were quite a few representatives of the Google team there and everybody was like freaking out and they were all asking what happened, what happened, what happened, what happened? And the Google team was pretending that nothing had happened. And then one week later, the results were officially published and, and it was, yeah, it was, it was great. But as you so, said- So that was a big deal, clearly. It was a huge deal. This yeah. was a huge deal because there are still today skeptics of the technology, people who say quantum computers right. will never work. But I think at this point in time, they are just, allow me to say, being a bit delusional. 
So, so why, have, why has it not been possible to do anything useful with it? Because classical computers are incredibly good at what they do. So if classical computers wouldn't exist, then we would be talking about a revolutionary technology, which in itself is a revolutionary technology. But the reality is that quantum computers, are, they are the challenge is against classical computers. So you have to remember that classical computers are incredibly powerful. Like the, the newest Japanese device, uh, the Fugaku, it is huge. It has 500,000 teraflops. It is just an incredible, like the computing power that these machines have is incredible. So before we can actually reach those limits, we still have to push the boundaries of what quantum computers really can do. Okay, okay. And um, talk to me about how will you actually use this? So it's, it's somewhere more than 127 cubits, but it's not like, it's not like we're 20 years away. I mean, it is, we're, we're getting close, right? I believe so, yes. We're, I don't think we're 20 years away, yeah. Right, and, and how will the industry be structured? You know, I want to get on to how it might have impacts in, you know, the area I know well, the net zero transition. Mm-hmm. But I'm, let, let's, let's first talk about how you actually access these machines. I mean, you've got this chandelier. You're not going to have one in every, you know, in, in every uh, office. Um, it's probably, if I've understood it right, you probably need, they're probably so difficult to handle. They're never going to end up, you know, in your mobile phone or in your car. They're going to sit somewhere, at least for the next, you know, many to, they're going to arrive on the scene commercially in the next few years. But for the next many decades, they're going to be big centralized things. Uh, what does the industry look like to enable them to be used? You right. talked about so, the cloud. Is that it? Exactly. So the cloud is really the key word here. Take the chandelier. And you're right, they're still fairly complex to, to move and to handle. But funny enough, IBM started to ship them around the world. So they have one in Japan, they have one in Germany, and most of them are in Yorktown in uh, in uh, in US. So it, it, even there, there's a lot of progress. So it's becoming easier to move the machines around. Uh, but yes, for now, they either they are sitting within the cloud infrastructure, one of these big companies, I mentioned IBM a few times, but AWS and Microsoft have also started their own quantum cloud services. For now, they're not giving access to their own device, to their own proprietary devices. They're giving access, for example, to Rigetti's, IonQ's devices, and others. So you have these central players, if you like, these quantum cloud providers, who ideally want to give you or should give you access to both the classical computing power and also the quantum computing power. And if you're the user, let's say if you're me or my team at Entropical Labs, what we do is we connect through the cloud to these devices, and then we send what we call quantum programs or quantum algorithms that can be run on the machines. And then we wait for the results to come back. Okay, so, but but you're not sending, I mean, it's not running, I don't know, your call center software. It's not running um, your normal sort of computer programs because classical computing is doing all of that, but what you're doing is you're identifying a particular algorithm, folding a protein or doing, or doing some vast forecast that the, that the classical computer can't do. You separate that off and you're sending just that to the quantum computer. Is that correct? There's one way to think about it, yes. And, and you very correctly, you said something very important, right? Which is you cannot just take your code let's call it your classical code, whatever code you might have, send it to a quantum computer and hope that it works. 
that it will work because it, it is not going to work. The, the paradigm is different, the logic is different. In fact, even when I speak about our company, it's very easy to say that we are a quantum software company because we don't build quantum hardware, but I'm very uncomfortable with that word, software, because I, I personally believe that software in quantum computing is still mostly lacking, but it's lacking simply because we never needed it because we didn't have quantum computers on the cloud. So this is a whole new industry that is growing very, very quickly. And we are starting to realize what is actually missing in terms of hardware, infrastructure, and software needs. And people are filling gaps, et cetera, et cetera. And to, to give more meat to what you were saying, like we work in, in optimization. So uh, applied mathematics, ideally you have these complex problems, you want to find um, the ideal configuration that either minimizes or maximizes some cost function of interest for you. So what you want to do, you want to find the mathematical description of the problem, and you want to rewrite it so that you can encode it into the logic of the quantum computer. And then you interface with the quantum computer of your choice. And remember that we have different devices available. So there is still quite a lot of work needed to interface with the different machines. Then you send the code and you wait for the result to come back. So, so I think when we first spoke or one of our early conversations, you talked about a typical algorithm might be inverting a matrix, something that's incredibly computationally intense and might take a classical computer you know, if it had a big enough matrix to take thousands of years. So you just send that to the quantum computer, then you get the results back and you kind of then go off and continue doing whatever it was, optimizing your uh, power network or whatever, using the results. So this, that could be one way to do it. And, and I'm emphasizing the fact that it could be one way to do it because the reality is that people are proposing different approaches to how we will be using quantum computers. So inverting a matrix is something that becomes very, very important when you want to solve linear systems, for example. So in engineering, in, in data science, in machine learning, this is a fundamental problem. And yes, it can be very complex if the matrix is very large. So you could imagine in the future, and I'm saying in the future because to solve that problem, you need most likely millions of qubits. So we're still very, very far away from being able to handle it in practice. What you could do, you could have a workflow where most of the computation actually happens on a classical computer. And then once you have the matrix, once you have the information, you pass that to the quantum computer using a particular uh, architecture that's still missing called a quantum RAM, a quantum random access memory. You do what you need to do. You extract a piece of information of interest from that computation. You return it to the classical computer and you continue with your workflow. That could be one way to do it. If you are thinking about quantum simulations, for example, quantum chemistry, material science, then it becomes even more complex because it's still unclear how much of that computation is to run on a classical computer, how much of that computation is to run on a quantum computer. Because again, these are hard regimes to explore. So you may actually have a model of a, of a, of a molecule or molecular interactions in the quantum Right. Uh, in, in the quantum computer. So then now the question I'd have there though is how do you check your maths? Because it you 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 send something off and it comes back and it says, right, this this drug will do, will interact and will do this. And you say, well, how do you know? And it'll say, well, because I'm a quantum computer. And you have no way of knowing whether that is in fact the case. Or do you? Is there a way of sort of um, I don't know, using other quantum computers to to check each other's maths? It turns out <laughs> It turns out this is actually a huge problem because if 
if a quantum computer can solve problems that a classical computer cannot solve, then if a quantum computer in the future gives you an answer, you cannot rely on your trustworthy classical computer to check it because it cannot derive the same answer. So what do you do? It is actually a problem called verification of quantum computation. And if you assume, and let's say is a fair assumption, the quantum mechanics is correct, then what you want to ensure is that the quantum computer is actually doing what you're asking it to do or that the quantum cloud provider is indeed giving you access to a quantum computer and not to some bogus machine of sort. So yeah, you mentioned something that, uh, that reminds me very much of a work I was part of, of a collaboration I was part of a few, that was published a few months ago, where indeed we use different quantum computers to check each other. Now that we have more quantum computers available, then it seems quite a reasonable idea to use each device to check each other and you know convince ourselves that they're actually doing what they should be doing. I'm I'm just reminded of a time when I think it was one of the Intel chips did a particular thing and I don't know if it rounded down or it did something and it actually came up with wrong answers and it took a long time to figure out what was going on. I don't know if you're familiar with this situation. It sounds like that, but on steroids. Uh, Yes, absolutely, because that is an even more subtle problem, but here we're really talking about devices that unfortunately are still suffering from all sorts of noises. So all different uh, issues, if, if you like. So yeah, you can say there is something very similar on steroid. Okay, so now, now with that all as the preamble and the caveat <laughs> and how hard it is and where we are and, and so on, the transition to net zero, there are all sorts of um, problems that I could imagine might yield to this phenomenal new computing power, um, whether it's within the the chemistry or the network modeling or all sorts of things. Are there any that you would sort of pull out and say, yes, I could see how uh, quantum computer is going to revolutionize this or that aspect of the net zero transition? I don't know. Uh, Anything come to mind or I could suggest a few? Quite a few actually come to mind. And That's another reason why I am personally very excited about quantum computing as a technology. Maybe we can start with this division. Uh, We can can categorize problems into two sets of problems. Problems that are very natural to quantum computers. So let me say that they are grounded on, on concepts of quantum physics and quantum mechanics and problems that are not quantum per se, but they rely on basically very complex systems. So you're trying to solve um, applied mathematics problem with a very high degree of complexity. So in the first category, in the former category, you would have uh, quantum chemistry, uh, molecular simulations, material science, and those have, as you as you can easily imagine, a lot of applications into the right. So things things like um, enzyme reactions, uh, exactly. battery chemistry, catalysts. Uh, or, or, um, you know, in the battery cathode and photovoltaic. Also in, yeah, exactly. So surface effects in photovoltaics. Absolutely. Where there's something quantum going on yeah. and therefore trying to break it down into a linear classical computing ones and noughts is just simply not going to capture all the things that are going on at the same time. Correct. So if you want to fully understand the properties of quantum systems, intrinsically you need a quantum computer you need another quantum system to capture those properties fully. And you mentioned fantastic use cases, right? Especially for me, something that I find very, very powerful is this idea of batteries. Now we are witnessing this 
transition, if you like, to having incredibly good, let me just say the word good, incredibly good batteries. And this is one of the reasons why we're also witnessing this transition to electric vehicles, because now we can actually keep um, a car with a battery that lasts long enough that can be quickly recharged. And before this was not possible. So imagine a future where we can improve on that even further, where we can actually increase the capacity of the battery, where we can increase the lifespan of a battery, where we can start miniaturize the battery that enables not not only it helps with reducing um, you know emissions and it helps with the whole idea of climate change, but it also enables new technologies that today are just hard, especially in transportation, especially in production, and also in uh, grid management of the energy grid. That's right, and it's a sort of dirty secret in some of those sectors how much trial and error is right. still required. Um, just formulating uh, different bits of the battery, or or, or different uh, combinations of. I mean, it's the same in the in the drugs industry, isn't it? The same in the medical industry. There's a much more trial and error than you're led to believe by watching Hollywood films, right? Yep, absolutely. So the the problem is that in chemistry and in material science, the worst cases in simulation may require exponential resources in terms of computing power, which means that if you want to fully simulate the system, it will take too long, just potentially thousands, if not longer, of years. Um, And you want exactly to avoid the problem that you're mentioning, trial and errors, lab trial and errors, and you want to move as much as you can of that process, let's say on silico, in this case on quantum computation, so that then you can only go and test what you're already fairly sure is going to work. And are we already seeing companies trying to do this? I mean, the computers aren't quite ready for prime time, but are we already seeing the big chemicals companies, the, the DAOs and the, and the BASFs uh, and so on? I mean, I don't want you to reveal who your clients are, but do they include uh, or do you see the big chemical companies, the big material science companies, you know, uh, getting actively involved now in, in quantum computing? Right. So, um, Absolutely. And, and you see, in fact, it's very interesting. You see more than that. You see the quantum hardware companies, you see the startups, and you see the chemical companies, say the big companies interested in these applications, all working together. It's still a very collaborative ecosystem, I would say. So you have, for example, Microsoft, um, Station Q, which is a research center um, sponsored by, by Microsoft in, in California. They have been doing incredible work in 2017 on nitrogen fixation. Okay, just, nitrogen, to, just to give you an example. Right. Nit- nitrogen fixation, of course, is a, a that would be a, a huge, huge problem. problem to solve for yeah. the climate because at the moment we use nitrogen in fertilizers and I think it's 2% of global uh, emissions comes from making fertilizers from natural gas and even from coal. So we make the hydrogen even from coal. Um, so fixing nitrogen from the air in a clever way would be huge. Right, so exactly, it is exactly. So I, I think is is about between one or two percent of energy consumption globally. It, it goes to solve um, or to solve to perform nitrogen, nitrogen fixation because you want to have nitrogen basically assume a biological processable form, right? Using catalysts. And what is incredibly fascinating about this problem is that nature knows how to solve it because plants, bacteria, they do that. It's just that it is incredibly hard to find the right catalysts or catalysts that are very efficient for our needs because. It's just a hard problem. There are too many. You can't 
practically test all of them. So you eventually, if you want to improve the process as it is done today, you need to rely on, on computation. And in this case, quantum computing is going to help. So, so the, um, the question of nitrogen fixation, of course, there's a parallel problem around carbon fixation. If we right. could take carbon yeah. out of the atmosphere in an incredibly elegant and clever way, I mean, the thermodynamics of carbon is very different from thermodynamics of taking nitrogen out because it's 400 parts per million versus 80% of the air or whatever, whatever nitrogen is. But um, that feels like an analogous problem, no? It is. And funny enough, Microsoft is also looking at that. Um, they, they released a paper just recently where they are talking about CO2 fixation. Uh, and again, the, the idea is very analogous, right? They are looking for quantum algorithms so that they can find better catalysts for CO2 fixation. Right. And also in terms of carbon capture, since you mentioned that, there was a recent collaboration announced by Total together with a startup called at the time was called Cambridge Quantum Computing. Today it merged with Honeywell Quantum Solutions and they're called Quantinum or Quantinum. Um, but this is just to say that it is not only Microsoft, there's not only these big players, but as you were mentioning, is also the big companies together with startups looking at innovative solutions for these problems using quantum computing. Okay, so those are examples of processors that are inherently quantum. Right. So it's, it's materials, it's chemicals, it's, it's, it's batteries, it's uh, surface, uh, you know, surface interactions on solar cells. And those yeah. ones, um, you reckon, you've kind of got to go quantum because they're just the nature of the problem. But you said that there was another one where you're going to use the quantum computer almost as a kind of bigger sledgehammer for problems that are fundamentally you know, accessible to binary processing, but it would just take too long or be too difficult. Can you give some examples of those? Sure. Yeah, exactly. I, I think of those as applied mathematics, uh, let's say again on steroids. So like, I, I think the key word there is really complexity. So these are intrinsically very complex problems and they happen in optimization, which is the field uh, we, we focus on, but also in data analysis and machine learning and artificial intelligence and fluid dynamics or you know, weather forecasting and, and so forth. So I'll give you an example that I think is incredibly interesting. Speaking about... Um, transition to, to renewable energies. So now that the prices both of basically solar production and wind production have been quite amazingly collapsing, pretty much an exponential rate in the, la in the, in the last 10 years by I believe between 80 to 90%, at least for solar cells. It's not crazy to imagine that in the near term, we're gonna see big changes in the electric grid in the way the electric grid is designed. In fact, this was something that uh, Noah Smith recently discussed also in his blog. If you, if you don't know the blog, you should follow it. It's, it's really, it's really no, interesting. No at no opinion, N-O-A-H opinion, yes. Correct, yeah, correct. So you can, you can imagine that you're gonna have uh, an electric grid that is gonna be very different from the one that we have today, uh, potentially, where there will be a lot of smaller producers rather than having a big coal plant in the middle that's giving electricity to all the nodes, each node might be producing electricity independently. But if these nodes are producing electricity based on uh, renewable energies or renewable sources, sorry, then you have stochasticity in the process because you know if it's cloudy, if there's no wind, then you're not gonna be yeah. able to produce electricity on that time. So you need to be able to optimize this huge problem where you want to have a flow of basically 
You want to have power on the full grid constantly because everyone wants to have electricity available right at each point in time, but you need to do so by basically optimizing over a very large number of points, each one producing electricity in a stochastic manner. This is a huge optimization problem. Now, classical computers might be able to handle it. We don't know, but it seems to be right. quite a nice problem for, well, quantum okay. computing in this case. Now, we could disappear down this rabbit hole because there is Absolutely. an alternative approach there. And, you know, I love that, that uh, you know, um, Noah is now applying his fabulous mind to this stuff. But there is an alternative approach, which is to have the nodes talk to each other and react like a flock of birds to what's happening around them, rather than having a single central super control, which would have to be more powerful than any computer that already exists. And, you know, I was, you know, this would be the transactive grid, um, uh, which, you know, I don't want to sort of pull rank, but I've been trying to get my head around for uh, since about 2008. And you see elements of it. And the answer is going to be, you're going to see elements of both. You're going to see the, the probably the big right. grid, the transmission grid centrally controlled and the distribution grids. But when it gets out to the edges, you have to have the washing machine talking to the, uh, to the other appliances in the house, not having that solved by, by a, a, even, even a quantum computer in Houston and then trying to send the message back through the system, I think is going to be very difficult. You're absolutely right. It's one of the reasons why I love optimization because sometimes you're able to tackle very complex problems using very smart heuristics. For example, instead of looking at the global problem, it might be enough to look at the local uh, problems or break it down into local problems and find good solutions. But as you, I think what you said is very real. Um, yeah. You have edge problems, but you also have global problems that more likely than not are going to require the high level of computing power to be tackled. No, absolutely. And I don't want to push back against the, the concept of the quantum computer in the optimization role. And another one that would come to mind clearly would be the transportation system, where absolutely. you do actually have quite a lot of yeah. central control and communication, um, even optimizing London's traffic light system. If I told right. you how primitive it is today, I was on the board of Transport for London, and I thought that there was some magic. It's not magic. It's still a lot of engineers going around and not quite with stopwatches, but uh, it's, it's certainly not uh, being done uh, in, you know, in the way that a quantum computer, in theory, could sit across it and, and do. I'll give you, since we're speaking about transportation, I'll give you another interesting problem there, which is the whole idea of electric vehicles grids optimization. So if you have a limited number of stations, for example, where you can charge your EV, and you have a very large number of electric vehicles moving around, you want to be able to find, first of all, you want to be able to position the charging points in the right places. So this is a design, if you like, um, problem at the beginning. It's like a planning problem. And then you have the scheduling problem, which I believe is what you were referring to. Like once the vehicles are moving, uh, you might want to have something telling you where to go to charge the, the vehicle for how long, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just, I find it incredibly interesting to think about these very complex optimization problems that very quickly pop up pretty much everywhere. Once you start to have a very large grid with a lot of moving nodes and with a lot of stochasticity. So with a lot of, um, let's say randomness intrinsic. In fact, there's, I think it's also important to mention that there is a, there's an organization or consortium, I think is the right word, called Q for Climate, which 
brings together different scientists and experts, both from startups and universities and academic institutions. That is also looking at these kind of problems, you know, in chemistry, in optimization, in uh, also in quantum sensing, for example. Well, that's fabulous. And what we'll do is we'll put a link into the show notes because I wasn't aware of Q for Climate and it sounds like I should have been, but I wasn't. So let's try and and diffuse that uh, knowledge as well. Um, I've got to ask you this. We've been through the kind of, you know, there's the, the, the sunlit uplands. We will be solving chemical problems and quantum problems. We'll be doing this huge sledgehammer uh, optimization problems. But is there a concern that the first quantum computer will actually be used just to crack the code and break the security on all of the infrastructure, all of the energy and transportation passwords out there? So, you know, is there a risk that the first impact of quantum computing on uh, on the infrastructure and energy transport climate will be massively negative, a huge amount of investment required to protect against somebody using quantum computing? Well, there certainly is a risk. In fact, you're referring to, you're referring to the infamous and famous Shor's algorithm. The- so this is from, from 1995. is one of the very first, maybe the first quantum algorithm that had a real-world application, unfortunately, not necessarily a quote-unquote good one. Um, and this quantum, this quantum algorithm can be used on a, on a quantum computer of sufficient size. And again, we're speaking of millions of qubits, so something that is still fairly far away in the future, to crack RSA. And RSA... Which is the encryption algorithm. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a public key distribution that is used ubiquitously on the internet today. So usually when you connect to your bank or to your email account, you are communicating securely with the server through a variation of RSA. Right, or to your power station, or to your electric vehicle, uh, or to your uh, transmission grid, your high voltage grid. I mean, it's being used to secure everything. Correct, pretty much everything. Now, yes, there is a there is a threat, let's call it this quantum threat, that if somebody somewhere right now had a quantum computer of sufficient power, yeah, they could crack all these codes and it would be very hard for us to know that this is happening if they're smart about it. I don't believe this is happening. And in fact, I believe that the knowledge that this is, that really this was the first application or the first well-known application of quantum computing, this knowledge, in fact, I think has been way more positive then it may be negative in the future. And let me say why. It be, it, because it pushed the field forward. So it transformed quantum computing into what was, at the time, it really was more of some sort of curiosity, some sort of computer science niche topic that people were looking at. But once people became aware that it actually had a huge application, this completely changed the game. And companies, Government started to pour more and more money up until today. So the fact that everyone is aware that this is an application of quantum computing, I actually think is a very positive thing. First of all, because it forces everyone to be very open and transparent about what they're doing, but also because it forces companies and standard makers to prepare for a threat. And everybody knows about it. So every digital technology that takes off uh, has applications in one of two areas. One is um, security, 
And the other, of course, is pornography, but I don't see quantum computing being much use there. Maybe I'm wrong. Some some clever soul will come up with something. But the point about it being a potential threat, and that focuses the mind, so that has sucked in a lot of resources. Every Presumably every um, uh, CTO, uh, CIO, chief information officer, had to have a view as to whether it was going to render security uh, inoperable. But does that also mean that there's some enormous... Um, arms race between not just companies, but also between countries for um, quantum superiority, not over classical computing, but using the words in a different way, superiority over each other. Sure, there is. Yeah, 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 there is. And it's also important to keep in mind that quantum takes, which is what we are discussing, but quantum also gives. So yes, there is a threat, but and 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 you know governments, countries are aware of that, and there certainly is let's call it an arm race between the U.S., Europe, and China, where they're all rushing to build more and more powerful quantum computers before the other countries or blocks do. But there is also an effort in building new infrastructures based on quantum communication, for example, also based on quantum computing, where you're able to perform certain cryptographic protocols certain security protocols in a way that you wouldn't be able to do with classical either communication or classical computers with much higher security, if not complete security. Although complete security in cryptography is always a very theoretical concept that doesn't hold in in reality. But I really love this concept that quantum takes, but also quantum gives. Like quantum key distribution is an idea similar to RSA in spirit based on entanglement the effect that we mentioned briefly at the beginning of of the conversation that allows you to exchange a key between two parties in a way that is basically unbreakable in the sense that if somebody is eavesdropping, is listening to this key exchange, the two parties would be able to detect it and immediately stop the communication. And this is presumably to do with Heisenberg and all sorts of clever quantum physics that if somebody listens in, it changes the the nature of of the calculation. Right, so it has to do with the collapse of the wave function. It also has to do, um, it, it really is based on, 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 the, on the very funky properties of entanglement okay. that allows you to do something that you can do with classical correlations. Very cool. I, I need to stop there because you're going to lose me, but uh, um, we're also nearly out of time, Tom, uh, and it's been absolutely fascinating. I want you to just finish, if you might, um, if we were having this conversation, and hopefully we will be in five years' time, can you tell me what we might have seen? What what would right. have been what what is it that you think is so close to happening that in five years' time you'll be able to say, Michael, I told you this would happen, and it did. I hope that it will be quantum advantage. What you were asking me about before, the demonstration that a quantum computer solve a problem of value whatever value means, in a way that a classical computer is unable to do. I think we are very close to that. The, the biggest transition that we, have, that we have enjoyed in the last really 10 years is that these machines moved from being, again, university curiosities, curiosities and exaggeration, university endeavors, to commercial devices that anyone can access, that a teenager can access and start playing around with. And with his... So we are really living this this stage uh, or this time in the industry where people are trying all sorts of stuff. It's the heuristic uh, stage of quantum computing, if you like. And I believe that there is a very high probability, there's there's a real chance that 
by having access to these machines, by pushing the limits of what they can do, by trying smart and clever algorithms, we will be able to find a niche application where quantum computers can exhibit quantum advantage. Whether it's going to happen in the next five years, well, we don't know. Nobody really knows. But if you ask me, could it happen? And in five years, we will be talking about that and we will be very excited. Yes, I think it can happen. Very good. So here's hoping that not only will quantum computing have solved its first real world problem, but that that solution will actually also help us move towards net zero rather than some other uh, less uh, vital aspect of the economy. Absolutely. Very good. Listen, it's been a great pleasure talking to you, Tom. Thank you very much for spending some time with me. I know it's very late over in Singapore. And so I'm going to thank you on behalf of all of our, our listeners and our viewers. And let's go. Thank you. It has been my great pleasure. Thank you so much, Michael. So that was Tom DeMarie, CEO and co-founder of Entropica Labs and quite the expert on quantum computing. My guest next week is Inga Anderson. She's an Undersecretary General of the United Nations, and she's the Executive Director of the United Nations Environment Programme. Please join me at this time next week for a conversation with Inga Anderson. Cleaning Up is brought to you by the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation.